Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Anxiety at Work podcast. I'm Chester Elton, and this is my co-author and dear friend, Adrian Gostick. Well, thanks, Jess. Uh, We hope the time you're going to spend with us is going to help remove the stigma around anxiety and mental health in the workplace and in your personal life. And we invite some of the world's greatest experts to give you ideas and, more importantly, tools to deal with anxiety in your world. We love our communities. Thank you so much for your time. And we're really excited to introduce you to our guest today, Anne Grady. Anne is an internationally recognized speaker, author, and leading expert on resilience and the science behind it. In her newest book, Mind Over Moment, Harness the Power of Resilience, Anne delivers a collection of actionable, practical, and timely takeaways for the changing world we find ourselves in today. Anne's book is broken out into three parts each covering the what's, how's, and why's of practicing mind over moment, showing you how to retain your mind to be more resilient, showing you how to retrain your mind on how to be more resilient. One of the most powerful takeaways from her new book is that resilience is a skill that can be learned, practiced, and honed. It's one of the things we love about having Anne on the show. And boy, do we ever need these skills, especially now when anxiety in the workplace is especially high. So welcome to the show, and we're delighted to have you on our humble podcast. Oh, well, thank you so much for asking. I'm thrilled to be here with you, and it's such an important topic. Well, uh, thank you again, Anne, for for joining us. You know, your own personal story that you've shared of resilience is so compelling. Um, I have a son, Anthony, who's who's lived with anxiety and depression, and and he said that resilience is something that's been very important to overcome those issues. So we'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about your journey to resilience, especially with your son, Evan. Um, and, and tell us a little bit about how Evan's doing now, how old he is, etc. So when I was pregnant, I knew something wasn't right. And a lot of people say, oh, come on, that's a mom knows, right? I just knew something wasn't right. And when he was born, the nurse said, honey, I've been doing this 30 years. I have never seen a baby this angry ever, which is, you know, always what a first time mom wants to hear. He just cried all day and all night and he was inconsolable. And when he was 18 months old, my husband left. So I had just started a new consulting career. I had a baby that cried 20 hours a day and I was very alone and I kept going to different doctors and nobody could tell me what was wrong. They just said if I were a better parent, he'd be fine. Um, But when Evan was three, he tried to kill me with a pair of scissors. I wouldn't give him more ice cream. And when he was four, we started him on his first antipsychotic. So Evan's first hospitalization was at the age of seven. Um, We lived at the Ronald McDonald house. I got married when Evan was about nine years old and um, we lived at the Ronald McDonald house for two months while he underwent treatment. He was hospitalized again in 2014 and that's the time I was diagnosed with a tumor in my salivary gland that led to a whole host of craziness. Um, Evan is 17 years old. He'll be 18 in April and we just got off a psychiatry call with him, literally. So Evan has been at a therapeutic boarding school in Idaho for the last couple of years. And as he graduates and tries to, we need to figure out the next step. So it was funny because I was thinking about this podcast today as I'm on the call going, I'm feeling so anxious right now. I wonder if I'm going to be anxious on the podcast about anxiety. <laughs> you know? So these yeah. feelings are very normal, but we're now in this place where I, I didn't, 
I haven't been prepared for, right? Which is guardianship and disability and finding another living situation that will keep him safe. And, you know, so it's, it's just a, an ongoing journey. Evan's formal diagnoses are autism, um, severe, uh, well, they call it severe mood dysregulation disorder. So it's kind of a jumble of depression, bipolar, anxiety, all, all mixed up into one. He's got um, individual developmental disabilities and delays. Um, he's got something called dysphoria, which I didn't even know was a thing, which is basically whatever he's doing, he, he's not really happy. He just wishes he was somewhere else. So it's definitely been a journey. And I was diagnosed with clinical depression at the age of 19. So, um, you know, I have some experience with it as well. This is why a portion of all my book proceeds go to the National Alliance on Mental Illness in, in Central Texas because I'm, I'm such a huge advocate of reducing the stigma. You wouldn't shame someone for having a cold or getting COVID, you know, but when we're dealing with intense emotion, it becomes almost a judgment. And one out of every three people in this country are struggling with anxiety or depression as a result of COVID. So it's becoming a norm. You know, I think any person would be incredibly anxious and worried with just one of those things that you mentioned. And you mentioned 15 things. I mean, when you talk about resilience, um, I am just so inspired that you seem so put together now and just came off a call with your, you know, with your, with your doctor. And, you know, this is the second time you and I have talked and I've thought about you often uh, with your story and, and how important it is for you to be able to share with people that even in the face of all of that, you know, going through the divorce, going through the different diagnoses, having your own health problems, that, you know, this resilience thing, you know, we talked about in our LinkedIn live show, you talked about life is made up of moments. You know, I, I still, I still, though, I, I still have to ask you the question, isn't it hard to live just moment to moment? You say you can train your mind to do that. And how would living moment to moment help or how does it help with, with anxiety? So the goal of mind over moment is is not to live each moment separately or, or you know, I, I think that can often create even I, I, more anxiety when you're like, am I living this moment correctly? Am I doing it right? Um, you know, I think that I, well, I know the idea of mind over moment is to become aware of your thoughts and emotions without letting them drive you, right? Without letting them control you. So most of us get in a very reactive frenetic state i think life kind of um, almost requires that at least on the surface with and and prior to covid you know it's it's driving the kids from one lesson to another and recitals and games and dealing with work and meetings and networking functions and birthday parties and having to you know be everyone to you know be everything to everyone and even you said it and you look so put together right i that's people are great at presenting the version of themselves that, that they want you to see. And the goal, I'm so grateful for your podcast is because it's getting under that layer, right? It's, it's, it's okay to say, you know what? I'm not okay. Um, but mind over moment is really learning to step out of that frenetic, busy reactivity and decide how you want to live your life. 
I think we've, I don't know about you, but I got so busy trying to survive the life I had that I forgot to create the one I want. And if you're not deliberate, it just passes you by and we live on autopilot. Each day becomes the same day and we just kind of repeat the same patterns and we look up and 50 years may have gone by and gravity's taken over. We may or may not be any closer to reaching our goals, but we just wonder like, what did I just do? And, um, and I, I'm on a mission to like get people to stop and really be purposeful about the way they live their life. Well, that, okay, so we're going to kind of, you know, as I, as I think about this, I kind of want to think about, because living in a moment it seems to be more of a short-term thing we're thinking about right now, but what you're talking about is more of a long-term. Uh, so can you explain maybe how mindfulness helps us create this sense of direction and, and strengthen our resilience more long-term than short-term? Well, there are thousands of studies. I wish I, I could claim that I've figured this out myself, but no, there are thousands of studies that document the physical and mental health benefits of mindfulness. And when people hear that term, when I used to hear that term, I imagined like sitting in a full lotus and eating tofu and finding my Zen and inner self and whispering to Yoda. Like I had all of these visions in my mind, but the truth of the matter is mindfulness is nothing more than brain training. That's it. It is training your brain to direct its attention where you want it to go instead of where it naturally goes on its own. So you can learn mindfulness through meditation. That's one tool. But the goal isn't necessarily the ease and the calm you feel in that moment because it's hard work. Your brain is constantly wandering. Buddhist monks call it your monkey mind. And it, our minds love to chase things like little shiny objects, right? And so you're in the middle of trying to focus on being mindful and you're like, oh, I forgot to call my mother. Okay, wait, focus. All right, what are we going to have for dinner? And it's just really easy to get caught up. I think the research, I don't know of a newer statistic, but in 2010, Harvard came out with research that said we spend 47% of our time somewhere else, somewhere other than where we are. And we live our life checking our phones out of habit and, and, you know, switching tasks every three minutes and swiping or tapping or, or trying to get some type of dopamine gratification from staying busy. But that's not what the human mind was designed to do. And mindfulness is a way to train your brain to start observing your thoughts and emotions without getting swept away by them so that you can really get curious. And, and dig down a little deeper. So, so walk us through, you say, retrain your mind to be more mindful. And we know that that's a powerful tool in tamping down anxiety, right? So how do you do that? Like, can you give us a, a one minute demonstration? How do I train my mind to be more mindful? So I'm not in that monkey mind and I'm not change, you know, chasing all those shiny objects. Well, that's what's so funny about it. My, you know, I'm a like huge perfectionist, overachiever, struggle with anxiety, you know, so I wish I could tell you there's one magic thing that all you do this and your anxiety, poof, it goes away. I think part of it is taking a step back and, you know, happiness is an $11 billion industry in this country, $11 billion, right? Now, wait a minute, just to interrupt. So what you're saying is if you have $11 billion, you'll be happy. No, <laughs> absolutely not. That is not what I'm saying. Uh, you will be no happier than if you had $100,000. Um, the 
the idea of happiness is a very western construct that we have kind of created this expectation that we are supposed to be happy and not have anxiety and the truth of the matter is your brain doesn't really care if you're happy your brain only cares if you're safe its only job is to protect you so anxiety serves a purpose it's alerting your brain to a potential threat and right now there's no shortage of it because our brain views uncertainty as a threat like our brain would actually rather have an outcome it doesn't like than one it doesn't know and because we have a negativity bias meaning we have been pre-wired to search for the negative as a way to protect ourselves because the positive things in our life aren't going to kill us uh, our brain has done a great job at you know really letting the positive things slip by and the negative things get stuck it's kind of like a strainer right if you think of spaghetti as the negative and the water as the positive and you pour it all through a strainer the water just pours out your brain doesn't have to depend on those positive experiences um, in order to survive so what it does is it is naturally in a state of negativity it is naturally in a state of looking for what is wrong it is naturally in a state of trying to protect you mindfulness and this practice first of all is just that it's a practice it's not something that you master it is not something that you just figure out it is something that you fail at and try again and fail at and try again and fail at it and try again and the the simplest explanation uh, is to kind of bring yourself back to being where you are when you're there you know the next time you're in a conversation do you find yourself thinking about what you want to say or when you're with your kids are you like hey let me just send this one last email or you're at a red light and you're checking your text message now people do this all the time I do this right this is not like to say that you ever get to a place of stillness and single tasking and you never do it it's the goal is to catch yourself when you're in that spiral so I just recorded a video today for our community and and, and if it's okay I'll share with you kind of the context because I think this will help so when something happens to us there's really two parts of it there's the event or the issue and then there's our interpretation of it right there's the story we tell ourselves about it so for example right now the issue is an 18 year old autistic mentally ill disabled child needs to find placement in a long-term program that's going to support his physical and mental health that's the truth the story I tell myself is, oh my God, what am I going to do? I'm going to fail him. He's not going to have a place to live. He's going to come here. It's going to be a mess. We're going to undo all the progress he made while he was gone. Um, how, how, now I have to get a lawyer and I have to file for guardianship and someone's going to have to serve him papers. And what if he goes into a group home and they're abusive and blah, 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 blah. And like it just goes, it spirals into this anxiety and, and you can almost work yourself up into a panic attack. Not almost, you can't. Um, part of what I have learned to do through mindfulness and, and meditation is brain training it's training your brain to direct your attention back is, is separating the event from the story I tell myself because it's only when you realize you're telling yourself a story that you get to reshape it or take back control of it you know the truth is I don't have any proof that things are going to fall off a cliff the day he graduates there, there's no evidence to support that right so I'm worried about things that may or may not happen it's not fact so anytime you're going through something if you can 
and my therapist actually taught me this, if you can take yourself out of first person and almost be like a news reporter, a third person objective party who's just explaining the facts of the situation and then view your version of the story you're telling yourself about it, simply stepping outside and realizing that you're telling yourself a story is enough to take your brain out of fight or flight and put you back into control. You know, what, what you're saying resonates so much with me. I remember being back in the corporate world as a, as a young employee and, and going into meetings, and I was really impressed by certain leaders, their ability to come into a meeting and just be laser focused. And, and I remember my mind going, you know, all over the place and just being really impressed by that. And so, yeah, what you're saying is, is, is really helpful too, not only in our, in our lives, but also in the working world. So, so maybe, you know, as we think about, and you've now been researching resilience for some time, is there a lesson, maybe that was a little counterintuitive for you, or maybe something that was really impactful that you learned while you've been studying this subject that, that might be really interesting, especially as we think about anxiety in the workplace? Yeah, so there really was a kind of an aha moment for me. And it is that when we try to numb uncomfortable emotions or we try to run away from them like alcohol sales in texas has gone up 500 percent since covid started right because people just don't want to feel uncomfortable they don't like discomfort and so in our attempt to run from that while it may seem counterintuitive it actually makes it last longer and feel more intense so if you don't want to feel anxiety and you tell yourself stop being anxious your brain feels more anxiety and it lasts for longer. So while it seems the opposite of what you would want to do, when you're experiencing anxiety or any other difficult emotion, sit in it. Give yourself some space for it. You don't have to marinate in it. You don't have to live in it for hours and hours and hours, but give yourself permission to experience it because we tend to think that our thoughts and our emotions are factual statements. And when we learn that our brain is playing tricks on us, our brain is trying to protect us. So it's constantly turning things into negative. It's telling us we're not good enough. It's telling us we're going to say the wrong thing. It's telling us we'll look stupid. Whatever your brain is telling you, those are not facts. Those are habit patterns that you have developed as a protection mechanism throughout the course of your life. And if you can step back from that and start to pay attention, that's why mindfulness and meditation is so powerful. So when we are stressed, the gray matter in our brain is the part of the brain that's responsible for emotional regulation, attention, and focus. And so when we are under stress, that gray matter density shrinks. Mindfulness actually grows it back. So it gives you the ability to step back from all of those swirling emotions and thoughts to evaluate them for what they are, right? And to not run away from them, but to let them work through you. And I know that kind of sounds new wave and, you know, kind of froofy, but it has been incredibly a, a powerful lesson because as someone who has struggled with depression, you don't like to feel sad. Nobody wants to feel sad, but in an attempt to not feel sad, right? So stress is the same way. I don't want to be stressed. So we have stress management podcasts, stress management books, 
programs, television shows, you know, coaches, right? Your brain, when you talk about managing stress, all your brain focuses on is that word, that feeling of stress. So an example of this would be, instead of focusing on reducing stress and anxiety, focus on finding joy and calm. It's a, it's a shift of the lens, but it is one that is so powerful and profound because it affects the way your brain processes the world. So instead of trying to reduce anxiety, look for gratitude. Instead of trying to reduce stress, look for joy. Instead of trying to numb discomfort, learn from it. That's the skill with resilience, and it is not an easy one. Yeah, uh, just as you're saying that, I, I'm thinking, that's hard. <laughs> you know, that's that's hard. You know, so often when we talk about resilience, uh, it's like you're bouncing back, right? It's that ability to bounce back. And we seem to put a premium on people that bounce back fast. You know, an athlete gets hurt and boy, they're so resilient. You know, they heal so quickly. They, you know, they go from a loss to a victory. And so there's this element of speed that we associate with resilience. How, how do you measure success in bouncing back from resilience? Is it like you're so practiced, you've trained your brain so well that you can do it really fast? Or is it just a process that you have to embrace? Give us your definition. So I'm going to go out on a limb, but I'm going to bet you my home and everything in it that the people who are listening to this podcast have survived every bad thing that has ever happened to them. Okay. okay. I'd agree with that. Right. We are resilient. Because they're here. Right. Yeah. We're resilient by nature. The definition of resilience is not just getting back up, but did you learn from it? Did you grow from it? So for me, the definition of success is not the outcome. It's the growth. And it takes different people, different times in different parts of their lives to deal with things differently, right? There is no, there's not a formula. Oh, well, you've grieved for three weeks now. You should be okay, right? Or, or man, you, you didn't get the job you wanted. I know you've been down about it, but it's been a month. You need to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and move on, right? Like those types of things aren't helpful. They're the judgment that we attach to the situation. So if you're a third party reporter who says um, Adrian has been looking for work for the last 18 months and he's approached multiple companies and he's waiting to see where he stands. Well, that might be the issue, but the story is I'm never going to find a job. What am I going to do? I'm going to be homeless. And, da, 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 da. and and so it it's really focusing on the growth and the learning from it. There's no timetable to tragedy or trauma. There is, and quite frankly, the change curve is the same as the grief curve. So it means that we go through these different stages. I was angry when I realized my son had autism. I was mad and I didn't accept it. I was like, no, no, no. He's just got some anxiety. He doesn't have autism, right? Even though there's nothing wrong with autism, it's just where my head went. Um, but we really tend to, um, and I've just kind of circled around this question, but we, 
I think it's just very easy to get caught up in the way we've always done it and, and relinquish control to our habits instead of being deliberate about cultivating them, right? So if you if think about a lobster, I talk about this in my TED talk and, and in my book, when the when a lobster grows, its shell becomes constricting and tight. It, it doesn't grow with the lobster. So in order to grow, the lobster has to shed its shell. It has to hide crustacean without a crust is very vulnerable and it hides under some rocks and some sand and it waits vulnerably and uncomfortably while its new shell grows. It does this through its entire life. We know that you cannot have growth without discomfort. Like I think my idol, Brene Brown, you can choose courage or you can choose comfort, but you can't choose both. Right. And so when you get comfort, when you have that time, savor it, enjoy it, soak in it. We get to be comfortable sometimes. But when you have the stuff that is challenging you past what you think you're capable of handling, you can't see it in the moment, but you're able to look back with perspective and learn from it. It's called post-traumatic growth. Like COVID sucks. Nobody wanted this. We don't, it's not like we're going to crave another pandemic, but I am willing to bet that we can look back in 10 years and take, extract some lessons from it. Things we did right, things we didn't, things we learned. It's, growth is the definition of success. You know, this is such good information. Uh, tell us more about your books, where we can find more information about you. I mean, the TED Talk, I'm guessing we just put TED Talk and put your name and we'd find that. What about what about everything else? So I've got two TEDx talks. Um, one is on finding your courage. And the other is based on my second book, which is Strong Enough. It's time you realized you're strong enough. But AnnGradyGroup.com is a great place. I've got hundreds of articles, interviews, podcasts. Our last interview, I think, is even up there. So um, it's just a great place for resources. And um, every week we send out a resilience reset email. And it's just a quick video tip tool or strategy to help really focus on resetting your nervous system to reset your priorities. And, and those are the skills that the book really dives into. The mindset is your habits and how we form habits, how we break habits, the story you're telling yourself, the growth mindset, what your brain is doing. Uh, skills are these practical hands-on tools that seem so simple that we often dismiss them. Things like cultivating positive emotions, emotional intelligence, uh, gratitude, social connection, humor, giving back, all of the, the tools, the things that we know um, really cultivate resilience. And then the reset is the third part of the book. And that's really how do you reset your nervous system? Because we have control over that. And when you're having an, an anxiety, specifically a panic attack, um, there's a reason it's happening. And if you understand the biology and the neurology, then sometimes you can make it objective enough to take yourself out of the equation. Right. So it's you can physically reset your nervous system um, and I have to do it all the time. You know, one of the one of the things that fights, I think, against resilience is is others expectations of us, uh, how resilient they expect us to be. So, you know, can how do we how do we work against that when maybe people, especially in the workplace where they 
expected to have certain resilience, as Chester said. Yeah, hey, we've given you a couple of days. Come on. How do we work against, you know, fight against that, you know, our own kind of panic of wanting to meet up to somebody else's expectations on our progress toward resilience? You know, that's a tough one because we crave social acceptance, love, and and want to be included. We're tribal by nature. It's it's a survival mechanism. So it's natural to want to be a people, people pleaser. It's natural to want to look good for others. It's natural to have all of those emotions. But then you have to decide what's realistic. And for each person in different situations, that will look very different. You know, I, I have had times where I have had to leave a keynote in the middle of the keynote because Evan was in the fifth grade having a meltdown and in a basket hold by police officers at school. Now, I had all this anxiety. They're not going to hire me again. They're not going to like me. They're not going to buy my books. They're not going to blah, 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 blah. And I was terrified of it, right? But ultimately, what is my priority? My priority is making sure my kid's safe, right? So in that situation, it's easy for me to go, I don't care what you think. I got to take care of my kid. Now, if I have something happen and I'm sitting in a meeting and my mind wanders because I'm distracted and my boss is like, hello, are you focused? Are you focused? Are you here? It's been a week. Then I go have a one-on-one and I have a conversation. This is where I am. And I think the beautiful thing that has happened this year that no one could have accounted for is this huge magnifying glass we are able to now put on mental health. And mental health is not the absence of mental illness. Mental health is a set of skills. It's a set of tools. It's a set of habits. So I, it is now accepted more than ever to go to some, to go to whoever it is on your team and go, look, I can appreciate that we're struggling here or that I'm struggling here and that that must make this challenging for you. Here's what, Here's what I need from you. Here's what you can do to help. And and it doesn't mean you're not still upholding the same responsibilities. It doesn't mean that you're not held accountable, but you can't give other people grace if you don't start with yourself. You know, I, I keep coming back to this idea of speed, you know, that the the, the champions, you know, the, the really good, that they bounce back quickly. I, I was thinking about, you know, my son Carter went through a lot of anxiety when he was just little and We'd let him stay home from school. And and I remember going and said, hey, buddy, you're falling behind. I mean, you can't stay home. Thinking that that would motivate him. And what I was doing was I was just piling more anxiety on top of him. (laughs) Well, what do you mean I'm falling behind? You you know, and it was it was so frustrating. I couldn't relate at all. And that was a real journey to uh, to give him that grace. And, um, you know, unfortunately, it, it, it took years. He's doing great now. Uh, he's got a good mom, is, is what I say. Um, talk, talk to us about managing those expectations, though, um, the bounce back ex- expectations. How do we do that? Because, you know, at a certain point, employers are going to, I mean, as much as we say there isn't a timeline, there is a timeline, I, I think, for for employers. You know, you can't take a year off and, and, and expect... Uh, and yet you've got to manage those expectations at the same time, right? So how do we how do we take the stigma off of that? Do we need to get the counselors talking to business people? Do we need 
to be a little more transparent. I agree with you. I think COVID has shone the light on that and everybody's kind of gone through it. There's more empathy around it. And at the same time, I think there is still going to be that, that sense that the clock is ticking. And so you better suck it up and figure this out sooner than later. Yeah, we're a culture that is obsessed with uh, productivity and getting more yeah. done. And if we're not getting it done fast enough, then we're not enough. And I, I don't know if I have the right answer to this. I, For me, I can only speak for myself and the, the teams that I work with. First, it's, you know, I've been blown away by, I, I have done resilience sessions for staff and leaders at Dell, Microsoft, Johnson & Johnson, General Mills, ADP, Boston Consulting Group, Starbucks. You, you, these companies are starting to realize this is needed, um, that, that people need these tools and that they are tools. Um, but I think you can also create some of your own boundaries for example, many of the boundaries we have, or many of the expectations are self-imposed, right? So we can put an email signature in our out, in our out, blah, 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 I can't speak. We can put an email signature, right? That says, I respond to emails twice a day at these times. If it's an emergency, here's the way to reach me, or here's someone else to reach. It's creating boundaries that allow you to disconnect. I understand I work with a lot of global teams and yes, it's tomorrow in Bangalore and I'm you know, doing stuff, but the, the ability to disconnect, your brain cannot be at 100% capacity all the time. So in order to meet the goals that your employer has for you, you have to set up boundaries that are going to provide you with the ability to meet them. And if you can't meet them, it's not the right employer, right? Like there's something to be said. I don't think it's employers. I think it's individual leaders and managers often. So it's not usually like an enterprise wide thing. I mean, it could be a culture thing, but I think more often it's these self-imposed things. Like we're not communicating with our manager that I'm feeling overwhelmed and that I've got a lot on my plate. So one activity that I encourage people to use is something called high payoff activities. And it's the 80-20 principle, right? Like 20% of X generates 80% of Y, 20% of, you know, social media followers generate 80% of your revenue, if that's your model, right? What it means though in work is that there are 20% of the activities that we do on a regular basis as part of our job that generate the biggest return for our time invested, the 80% of the return. And are you and your manager in alignment on what those are? Because you might think you're super busy and yet you're still not accomplishing what they want. So it's going back and independently of each other, it's saying, all right, here's what I think are the top five or six high payoff activities in my job. The thing, it doesn't mean the other stuff doesn't have to get done, but it means when I do those things, everything else falls into place. You ask your manager independently of you. If you were to identify the top five or six tasks or responsibilities that I have that generate the biggest return for the time I invest on them, my biggest responsibilities, what would they be? And compare your list because you're either going to validate you have the same perspective, in which case it's great to create alignment, or you're going to figure out that you've been spending a lot of times, a lot of time on things they don't deem quite as, as much of a priority as you might've thought, but it also gives you a way to push back. So, for example, if 
Um, I go to my manager, right? And I say, what are my high payoff activities in your eyes? They are mine. We combine our list. Then the next time she puts more on my plate, I can say, okay, I just want to level set here based on my high payoff activities. Where does this fall? And she might say, you're right. I didn't remember you were working on this thing. Let's put that off till tomorrow. This takes precedence. Or she might say, I didn't realize you had that on your plate. Let me find somebody else who can do that, right? So it's just about clarifying expectations. We, th we assume all the time and it's, not, it's the assumptions that get us. I need this ASAP. Okay, well, does that mean as soon as possible? Does that mean as soon as perfect? Does that mean I needed it yesterday? Does it mean I need it tomorrow? We have a lot of these expectations and many of them are self-imposed. If you have a manager or a leader that is not understanding your need for recovery time, then it's a conversation you really need to have or you need to have a skip level conversation and, and share with that person's leadership what you're going through because there's no timetable for, for grief or loss or anxiety it costs our a global economy one trillion dollars a year a trillion dollars a year depression and anxiety so it's not in the form that you would always think it's in it's in low morale it's in sick days it's in you know hiding in facebook so that you don't have to deal with the work on your desk because it's overwhelming so it's it's just got to be a conversation that we're willing to start having you know, you mentioned uh, sometimes it's a cultural thing, but it's more a, a manager or a leader thing. Boy, I, I just want to give a shout out to to a leader uh, that I've known for a long time. His name is David Kashish. He's at American Express. And we were talking about this situation with one of his employees that was out. And he said something I'll never forget. He said, you know what, Chester? Work gets done. It gets done. Whether you're there or not, it we figure out work, work gets done. Right. And he said, so when my employees are struggling, I just tell them one thing, get well, come back when you're well, don't worry about the work. The work will get done. And I loved David before that conversation, <laughs> you know, and, and to me, he just put himself in one of the great pantheons of leaders that get it. That it really is, you know, 10 years from now, they'll never remember what those assignments were that maybe got delayed or didn't hit the deadline. They'll all remember that he cared about them, every one of them. And so, yes, hopefully it's a cultural thing. If the, if the leader doesn't get it, the cultural part doesn't matter. Well, and that's why mental health needs to be a leadership skill. That's why resilience needs to be a leadership competency because it's not this magical presence it's it's learned behavior and if you've never had a leader say those things to you then how would you know to say those things to others when you're now in a leadership position right so this is just training and it, it's enculturating this mindset into organizations and it's slow but it's happening yeah. And I love the fact that you're out working with organizations, helping them with these skills. And uh, this has been just such an amazing conversation with so many amazing takeaways. I've taken three pages of notes myself. So <laughs> I, I hope our listeners, uh, you know, not only listen to this, but probably listen again and again, because your advice is so profound. Um, if you had to sum up our conversation today, what were a couple of things you'd like our listeners to take away as they uh, as they head out now and uh, 
and, and try and tackle the world with these new skills? What would you say? Well, one is to change your expectation of what life is supposed to be. It, it's not happily ever after. Happiness is not a genetic gift. It is a skill. And you're not supposed to feel happy all of the time. So one, it's to understand that you're not, there's nothing wrong with you. I hear people say, what's wrong with me? My family's healthy. Why am I so upset still? Why do I should be grateful? I have so much to be grateful for. There's no should. You're allowed to feel how you feel. Give yourself permission to feel it. So that's one. The next I would say is start paying attention to how much time you spend away from what you're doing. Start to pay attention to how distracted you are when you're in conversations. Catch yourself if your mind wanders. When you're with your kids, be with your kids. Start to practice presence, right? Being present with people. Because kids especially, they just want to be heard, right? I, I hear people say all the time, uh, love is spelled T-I-M-E for kids. That's just what they, they just want time. They don't need you to be perfect. They just want time. So I would say bring yourself back to the moment. But the other thing, and I haven't taught anybody how to do this yet, which is the most profound thing for me, which is sounds so silly, but it's breathing. And we typically take very shallow breaths from our chest and our brain literally doesn't get enough oxygen and blood supply to function optimally. So I learned a technique um, from a, an elite athlete friend of mine, and they teach this to newscasters, they teach this to opera singers. It's called diaphragmatic breathing. And the reason this is so powerful is one, it resets your nervous system. Three deep diaphragmatic breaths will reset your nervous system. Like a deeply relaxed person takes seven breaths a minute. So simply slowing down your breathing and paying attention to it is enough to let your brain know that it's safe. So if you're focused on your breathing, your brain knows you're not being chased by a tiger. That's the first component of it. The second is it's so backwards from how we normally breathe. So on the inhale, you actually want to pooch out your stomach. So you're almost like making a Buddha belly on the exhale. And then you're holding it for a second, or I'm sorry, on the inhale. And then on the exhale, the exhale is the part of the breath that puts you back into the parasympathetic nervous system. So on the exhale, that should be a little bit longer. And three of those, in through the nose as you expand your belly, hold it, exhale slowly, even deeper, like I imagine a weight pulling my exhale down. Three of those will reset you. And it is so simple to forget to breathe correctly. And we feel all of the physiological, well, my heart is pounding and my brain, my, my head is pounding and my shoulders are tense. Yeah, you're not getting air, <laughs> right? Like it's something we take for granted, but something as simple as changing the way you breathe. Um, and then the other thing that has been game changing is meditation. And there are a bunch of free apps. I wouldn't, I hated meditating because I kept thinking I was failing. You know, I thought I was supposed to feel Zen and peace and calm. And instead I felt like I couldn't control my mind and I was angry at myself for not being able to stay focused. But then I learned that that means it's working. So every time you catch your brain wandering and you come back, that's you're bringing the monkey back, you're reining the monkey back in. That's what grows gray matter. That's what trains your brain to start observing your thoughts without getting carried away by them. That's what allowed me last night to get a text right before I got into bed that normally would have sent me into a panic my heart rate still went up. I started to sweat. 
I started to get nervous and then I meditated till I fell asleep, fell asleep. And then I woke up in the middle of the night and I had that <gasps> and then I meditated and fell back asleep. And, and the issue was still there in the morning and it got resolved and it's no big deal. And I could have been up all night worrying about it, but just focusing on your breath is enough to re-regulate you. And, and we got to take ownership of our own body. You know, when you're anxious and I know you're like, finish up your answer already. And uh, when you're anxious, <laughs> when, when you're anxious, everything that you don't need to survive stops digestion, salivation, reproduction, all of those things stop. So your body can protect you. You've got to send your body the signal that you're safe and breathing is the best way to do that. So just to sum that up, you said the, the most important thing is breathing and you left it till the very end of our <laughs> well, save the best for last you guys this is how it Absolutely. works hey listen tell us again where we can find all your amazing work talk uh, tell us your book titles and your website one more time sure so lots of book titles but the newest one my favorite right now it's like my newest baby mind over moment harness the power of resilience and what's even cooler about it is that a special education teacher illustrated the journal that goes with it so I speak to a lot of educators and she took uh, all the notes as pictures of my speech and showed it to me, not so she could illustrate a journal. I wasn't even going to make a journal. It's just, it was so amazing that I, that I had to, but you can learn my books are available on Amazon. Um, if you get them and like them, please write a review. If you don't like them, you don't need to. Um, and then you can go to anngradygroup.com to learn more about my work and, and organizationally what I do. But you can always find us on social at anngradygroup. We've got a 31-day mindfulness challenge taking place right now, and it is not too late to join in. I appreciate you guys having me so much. You got it. Well, thank you for being on the show. Uh, amazing help. And, uh, you know... I, I, I really just appreciate how candid you are and how vulnerable you are and sharing your story and how powerful that is. I think when people are vulnerable like that, we can all relate and it gives us courage to do the same. So thanks so much, Anne, for, for being on the show. Well, Adrian, another amazing guest. I mean, what a what a incredible personal story and and all of that. So what are your some what are some of your key takeaways? Oh wow, I don't even know how I uh, pulled just a few ideas. Uh, you know, she talked a lot about mindfulness, which I thought was really important. And she said, you know, we have this monkey mind that bounces yeah. all over the place. And boy, have, uh, you know, how do we bring ourselves back to uh, to the present? And it's going to benefit us in our in our work life, but also in our personal life. Yeah. 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 I, I think, you know, when I think about, I don't think of a, I have a monkey mind. I have a monkey's mind. <laughs> I don't think one monkey covers it. You know, um, uh, she said happiness is a Western construct. I thought that was really fascinating. Your brain doesn't care if it's happy. It just wants to be safe. And so that's why it keeps warning you about all these things. And you need to train your brain to, to, to quit looking for, you know, the tiger behind every bush. And I thought that was fascinating that happiness is a Western construct. I thought that was fascinating. 
I took the same away, actually. I wrote that down as well. And also this idea that, look, our minds are like this, you know, colander holding spaghetti, and the positive will just drop out. Uh, <laughs> and that we will focus in on that negative. And, you know, so an event comes up, and she was talking about something that happened to her last night. And, and, and unfortunately, we do tell ourselves these stories, these negative stories. <gasps> oh, my gosh, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. And, and I liked Anne's advice of... Treat it like a news reporter. Uh, we focus in on the facts. What do we know? What don't we know? Uh, and keep to the facts. Yeah. You know, it was funny when she was talking about the colander and all the good stuff drains out. I had a Homer Simpson moment there where, don't, stupid brain, you know, <laughs> letting all the positive drain through. I, I, to, to your point, though, the event and the interpretation of the event, like you say, the reporter, what are the facts? Because as we start to interpret the facts, that's when we go down the rabbit hole. You know, uh, kind of a tender moment for my family today, and this was so helpful for me to be on this podcast. You know, we just got news that my brother's got COVID, and he's on the way to the emergency room. Now, it's one thing to say you've got COVID. We all know there's different. When you're headed to the emergency room, that's not good. And so I, I got to thinking, well, I could go down that rabbit hole immediately. We, he texted me on the way to on the way to, and he said, "Hey, I'll be okay." And I said, "You know what?" All I know right now is he needs to go to the hospital. It doesn't mean it's horrific. All, all we know is going to the hospital. I can deal with that. I can't deal with the interpretation of that. The interpretation of that would destroy you. And so I love the way she said, separate the event from the interpretation of the event. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and of course, our prayers are with your family, too, as, as your brother goes through that. Um, I'll bring this back to the, to the work world for just a moment, too, and say, uh, I'm going to bring this back to the work world as well for a moment and, and talk about this idea of, that she had, uh, Anne had, of high payoff activities and having a conversation with our managers. Because, you know, you would challenge, okay, well, what if it's a year? And, and, and I think... What we don't realize is people with anxiety, as we found in our research for anxiety at work, people with anxiety often are extremely intelligent. Sure. In fact, their, their moving minds want to keep them safe because they, they process so many threats. So these typically are not people who, are, who lack productivity. What can happen is being overwhelmed or, or, as she talked about, just processing so many things that it gets just paralyzing. And so really think focusing on those 20% activities when you're feeling overwhelmed and making sure you're in alignment with your manager, making a list. Are we in alignment? Are, am I focusing in on the right activities when I do feel overwhelmed? Yeah. yeah. She said, too, wasn't it interesting when you have those difficult times? Well, if you run away from it, it extends it. So sit in it. Don't marinate. Sit in it. Embrace it. The more the more you... You run away, the worse it gets. So face up to it, own it. You know, we talk about that, own own the situation. And I thought, boy, you know, that is retraining because that takes courage. Because your first reaction is run. Absolutely. And, and one last final thought is let's pay attention to the happiness around us, the joy, the, the gratitude. And so we are grateful for all of you for listening in. We want to thank our amazing producers, Brent Klein and Christy Lawrence. And we want to thank everybody who really has been vulnerable and has been on our show and is willing to join in our community. We thrive together. 
and talk about anxiety and mental health at work. Yeah, if you like to share it with your friends, you know, let's create a, a place that's really safe to talk about these things. It can be found anywhere where your favorite podcasts are found. And just my last note is, you know, we are by nature resilient. I love that. We're by nature resilient. If you're listening to this podcast, you are resilient. Don't forget that. So until next time, be well, be resilient, and know that we're cheering for you.